0: Hello and welcome to this, the latest TES International podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined in London this time, not over the wires, by Michael Lambert, who's headmaster of Dubai College. Or do you prefer Mike? Uh, Mike's good. Ed. Okay. Hello, Mike. Hello, Ed. Welcome to Tez HQ for this. I think it will be our fourth international podcast. Um, Michael, you're head of a very high-profile school by the standards, of, certainly by the standards of international education. Um, Dubai College in the UAE. Um, could you tell me a little bit about how you came to be in Dubai? Yeah,
1: so prior to moving to Dubai, I was working at a boarding school in Hampshire called Beedales, uh, which you may have come across. It's a very progressive, very progressive, um, very progressive school, co-ed, one of the first schools in the UK to go co-ed. So I was there for three years as, as head of classics and house tutor, and it transpired that Joe who was the, the head of dance at b was best mates with the head of drama at Dubai College. Okay. And they'd, they'd been to training college together when they were young, and then when uh, Nick and Irma emigrated to Dubai, they said, we've got to find a way to see each other on an annual basis because we're never going to see each other again. So they set up a dales B-Dales-Dubai College exchange. Oh, okay. And then I came to know about Dubai College, and then when the, the then head of sick form uh, left... Uh, he was married to Irma, who was the Head of Drama, and so my mate uh, applied for the Head of Drama role, and he said, look, there's a Head of Sixth Form role going as well, you should you should give it a go. So I applied. And you were Head of Sixth Form for how long? Um, so I was Head of Sixth Form for the first three years that I was at Dubai College. With the third year it sort of was enhanced into an Assistant Head and Head of Sixth Form role. And from there, Head Teacher? Yeah, bit of a meteoric rise. <laughs> yeah. For how long? Uh, so this is my fifth year now as head, yeah. And are you loving it? It's great, yeah. I mean, you know, like the old gag goes, it's it's a bit like being on a roller coaster. you know, it's got its ups and its downs, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's exhilarating, and sometimes you just want to get off, and sometimes you want to puke,
0: but, you know, <laughs> on balance, it's actually pretty enjoyable. So, so I think, um, looking across the piece, uh, Dubai College is white, unusual within the world of international education, in as much as it's certainly in the Middle East. It's very high profile, it's got a kind of an establishment reputation. Is it more like running a British boarding, British um, HMC school than it is an international school?
1: Um, Interesting, yeah. I mean, there there are elements to Dubai College which feel very, very sort of HMC, very independent day school, and I think when I first got there... I used to say to people, you know, you could pick Dubai College up and plonk it down in Surrey and it would be, you know, pretty recognizable. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is I think the longer that I've spent there, the more I realize that I, that was probably actually doing it a disservice and there's okay. actually quite a few layers to it. So it's it's not quite as establishment as as a UK HMC school. It is more dynamic, probably a bit more progressive <laughs> in terms of its outlook in terms of teaching and learning, it has mm-hmm. a greater diversity in terms of staff as well. So you know, w- within HMC independent schools, you quite often find that people are independent school teachers for life. Yeah. Whereas we have a, a far greater blend of state school teachers, independent school teachers and international school teachers all coming together. So it gives it a very different, slightly more cosmopolitan flavour, I think.
0: What's the, what's the demographic of um, your intake?
1: So we are um, just under 50% uh, British passport holders, okay. UK passport holders. Um, and then the remaining 50% are, we have about uh, over 50 other nationalities, so pretty diverse. But I think it's, you know, we are we are a, what, what what's dubbed a British curriculum school, even though there's no such thing as a British curriculum. So we do feel very <laughs> British and yep. it attracts, tends to attract those people who want that sort of an education. But it is, yeah, very cosmopolitan. And teachers who want to teach in such a school, presumably. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I think increasingly we've got teachers teaching at Dubai College um, because they've heard about us and they've chosen us. But when I first became head, I started to do exit interviews with all our departing members of staff. And one of the questions that I ask everybody every year is, think back and can you remember that far back? Because some of our staff have been there for 20, 30 years. But I always say, can you remember why you chose this job in the first place? And what's interesting is those staff who were there when I first joined Uh, used to say, oh well I was just looking for a job in Dubai and I was actually applying to several Mm -hmm. uh, and Dubai College was the first one that I got. So actually a lot of people chose us by accident. I think subsequently though, in the last five years, people have chosen Dubai College by choice and
0: because of reputation rather than we were one of several that they were applying for. Um, And when you say reputation, um, are we talking because... We had a nice chat on the phone a a few weeks ago, Mike, and you were talking quite passionately about the work you do um, with teaching and learning and research. Yes. Um, In in terms of reputation, is that what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably, you know, five major strands for why people choose the college and what its reputation is based on. So, yeah, the the first would be, I think, the academic reputation, the outcomes, the, you know, the exam results, the onward destinations in terms of university. We're also a very sporty school which i don't think people necessarily associate with dubai college initially so we you know we've got the leading rugby team in the golf and the leading netball team in the golf as well so sports huge creative arts is huge as well um and then philanthropy which you know we might get on to talk about a little bit later but the other part is the bit that you mentioned is teaching and learning and research so Mm -hmm. we've really invested heavily um and promoted the idea of being a professional learning community where we invest a huge amount of money mm-hmm, into staff mm-hmm. we strongly encourage them to to continue learning when they join us we part fund masters we host conferences on an annual basis we're driving three or four major progressive pedagogies within the school and it is a huge part of what we do it's very evidence-informed practice and i think that message is getting out you know through twitter and facebook and linkedin and conferences and, and award ceremonies and things because <laughs> of the work that we're doing Um when you talk about progressive pedagogies what
0: do you mean which ones
1: Uh, Well, this is the thing, actually. So it depends, uh, as we hosted a conference last year on innovation and education, I suppose it's a really, really tricky thing to define as to what you mean by innovation and education because, as a lot of established teachers will tell you, well, we've been here before, we've done this before, and it's all just come round again. Um, So I suppose innovative insofar as it's innovative for our school. Okay. Um, So what we're looking at in particular is um, uh, stretch and challenge uh, the use of evidence-informed digital in the classroom, okay. not any old digital, <laughs> uh, which happens, yes. I think, elsewhere. Uh, focus on metacognition based on the work that's coming out of the Education Endowment Foundation. Yep. And then, finally, uh, the big big push is actually on the Harkness philosophy, which we've borrowed from Phillips Exeter.
0: In the States? In the States, yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about this Harkness stuff? I'm not an expert. OK, so, uh, well, I'm not the expert
1: per se but uh, there was a there was a man and his name was edward harkness uh, and he was a, a great philanthropist and uh, established uh, or gave an endowment to philips exeter academy in the us and he had a vision for education and he said look the way that we teach at the moment by having you know students wrapped up in rows uh, all facing in one direction which is towards the front mm-hmm. uh towards an expert the singular expert at the front who's staring back at them and imparting information... The sage on the stage. The sage on the stage. That model doesn't work. Now, you know, today I think we'd probably all agree that there's an element of being the sage on the stage and the guide on the side, but I think back in 1920 when he said, look, we're going to ditch that, we're going to buy oval tables... And we're going to sit 12 students plus one teacher around every single oval table because the teacher is not the expert. Quite often the insights that the students will have will be as valid, if not more valid, than the teacher. Mm-hmm. Essentially the, the teacher's role is to coordinate that discussion and to be part of that discussion. Um, that was pretty progressive at the time. And I think you know, the more that we look at what the 21st century workplace is like, even though we don't necessarily subscribe to the fact that education is simply about preparing students to be good workers yeah. but if we do look at that uh, you know, we realise that actually the, the jobs that probably aren't going to be automated are the ones that require empathy, humanity yeah. the ability to articulate and to emote uh, because those things aren't easily replicated I think by AI or tech so if that's the way that the jobs that are going to survive will go then those are actually the skills and the qualities that we need to be cultivating in the students and that is exactly
0: what the Harkness philosophy does. You get students all sitting around the table. So all your classrooms, do they all have oval tables? They
1: They don't. Um, So we've only been going down this route for the past three years now. So we started with one teacher and then it doubled and it doubled again and we've now got 27 teachers in some capacity out of the 102 Mm -hmm. that we've got engaging with Harkness. We've got one beautiful uh, Harkness suite with a a sort of bespoke custom-built Harkness table which cost an absolute arm and a leg. <laughs> uh,
0: so, we How thought much does it cost? Go on, tell me. How much does a this table cost? Uh,
1: well, the one that we had custom built out of oak uh, cost... D- don't say it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, I'm my, eye my eyes water. So what we did was we actually bought then uh, modular seating so that basically you can rearrange your classroom very, very quickly into an oval table if you want so you, you can have your tr- traditional seating arrangement, but you can also quickly flip it into a heartless room. And actually that, that sort of adaptable classroom is, is the way that we've gone now across the whole school. That sounds
0: fascinating. Do you think um, there's something about the freedom of running an international school that allows you to be slightly more, um, let's say, radical? Yeah, it's an interesting... Would you be able to do this at a school, uh, even a state school, but certainly an HMC school in England, quite as freely as you have done? Yeah, I mean,
1: that is a question that I've asked myself recently, and and do ask myself. Um, I think it depends entirely on, you know, how your your board of governors or that structure works. Do you have owners, uh, or do you have an independent board of governors? And if you've got a... if you're owned, and there's a very clear educational philosophy it may well be that you're directed towards certain approaches in the classroom. Sure, I'm very lucky in that my chairman is, gives me a huge amount of autonomy, uh, so long as what we do is evidence-informed and it enhances the learning experience of the students and their outcomes and helps them to achieve whatever it is that they want. So long as we can prove that it will do that, we can essentially do what we want. So yes, there's a great deal of freedom, corollary to that, which is really really interesting, is sort of slightly paradoxical, is that we also operate in Dubai in a very very heavily regulated yeah. environment with the local regulator, the Knowledge and Human Development Authority. Um, so on the one hand, there's a lot of mandates as to what we have to do, but in the gaps between the mandates, there's a huge amount of autonomy and freedom
0: to choose what yeah. we want to do. Yeah, and um, one of the things that really interests me about international education is that tension between. Um, having the freedom to innovate, and I think probably less in Dubai because of the authorities, but also the freedom to coast.
1: Yeah, I, I, uh, I, yes. I think
0: a lot of international schools, not, none of my listeners, I guess, uh, but a fair number of international schools can yeah. get, get on by bimbling through because they don't have much external um, right. uh, accountability.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, that, w- that's really interesting, isn't it? I think if you are, it depends how densely populated your international education market is. Yeah. So t- irrespective, I think, of, 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 of the KHDA, who, can I just publicly state on record, I think <laughs> are a, a force for good and are not single-handedly, Wonderful. but certainly you know partly responsible for driving the standards. But um, irrespective, if you, if you were to take them out of the equation, there are 190 schools in Dubai, which is actually a relatively small yeah. city of, of, of 3 million, and half of those are British, cr- British curriculum. So there's actually a lot of us, and we're all competing for the same students. So, in a way, if you want to survive in Dubai, there's absolutely no way to coast. Whereas if you are the British school of whichever city
0: you're in, and you're not heavily regulated, then yes, I think there probably could be. uh, I'm not saying everyone does, I just think it's quite an interesting question. Um, Actually, as an aside, um, someone said to me reasonably recently that they thought the market... Within the, within the UAE um, was pretty much saturated for international schools. Do you think that's fair?
1: Um, it's, it's very difficult to say, and, and I'm not the expert, and I wouldn't. And I, I, <laughs> I do have to be careful what I do say. Yeah, of course. Don't um, but, I, you know, the population of Dubai, according to official statistics, um, is still growing. Yep. And so if it's growing, and, and it's growing with families, then there will be a need over time for more schools. It's just like any, any economy, there are peaks and troughs, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think if you, yeah, that my understanding from those operators opening now is that you've got to take a long-term view. If you're going to start, you don't expect to be full, you know, within your first year. Sure, you've sure. got to be there for five years, probably.
0: No, fair enough. Um, in terms of that kind of thing, what's the market for teachers like? Uh, do you have any trouble recruiting? Are you one of the lucky few who doesn't? Yes.
1: (laughs) Why is that? Um, I think it's a combination of factors. We are very lucky. So we, for example, we just recently um, advertised for an assistant head for tracking, monitoring and reporting. Um, And we had 76 applications for that post. That's
0: okay. Yeah, half
1: of which were... No good. So we had to sort of cull half immediately. But with the with the rest, I mean, there were 27 that we wanted to interview. We actually shortlisted it to 10 uh, who were exceptional. So we are lucky. Why is it? I think there's an appeal to living in Dubai, tax-free salary, year-round sunshine. <laughs> um, Sounds know. like a nightmare. <laughs> it's tough. It's a
0: tough old gig, but someone's got to do it. Right? Amazing. Um, one of the other interesting things that we talked about was this... Um, Fairly amazing project in Nepal. Right. Which, uh, you know, I was tickled to hear you say, as all these British schools are setting up satellites, you have set up your own satellite school. Yes. Can you tell me more about
1: it, please? So, as I mentioned at the start, you know, one of the differentiating features of Dubai College has always been its strong philanthropic tradition. Uh, And so, to enhance that further for the 21st century, we decided that we wanted to establish our own foundation. So, there's now the Dubai College Foundation, which is a, a registered charity in England and Wales. It's based here in London. Okay. Um, and as part of that, there are sort of four purposeable limits to that, one of which is to raise funds to um, build schools overseas, but they are charitable schools overseas. So we're working with United World Schools, uh, yeah. whose moniker is to teach the unreached. Um, They've got a school in Wales. Ah, no, that's, now that would be UWC. Oh, sorry. Yeah, as opposed to UWS, which is, yeah, um, so United World College has got Atlantic College, so and I'm that's part I'm of that group. Different one.
0: Fine, so fine, this, fine. This we'll is, brush over that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is proper sort of grassroots establishing schools uh, for students who live below the poverty line okay. in hard-to-reach areas. Yeah. Um, and so we thought, yeah, well, rather than, given our philanthropic Tradition, rather than setting up, you know, Dubai College, Riyadh, or Dubai College Beijing, or would that
0: be feasible?
1: um, It's an interesting question. It's what we we, we do come back to it periodically at the level of the board when we think about strategic planning. Um, Would it be feasible? I think we've probably got um, more uh, a more than strong enough reputation certainly within the Middle East for to be able to set up a branch um, within the Middle East. Whether it's got a global brand. Um, I, strength i don't know yet but certainly within the middle east we probably mm. could um, but rather than doing that and using that to sort of generate a surplus and profits to feed back into the the mothership we decided actually why not set up a school pro bono and wow. lend our expertise to helping establish a school for those who otherwise wouldn't have an education
0: so in nepal in nepal where's that uh, as in what stage have we got to
1: oh it's built it's up it's running yeah so, it's full of kids. Uh, yes, it's growing. So uh, it's got over 200 students at the moment. Mm-hmm. Expected to be 500 by the end of the year. So it's basically a community school in an area of Nepal called jay Jayzitok. Okay. Um, and yeah, it, 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 for some, it will be the only school within you know tens of miles that they could even attend, and mm-hmm. it's it's free of charge. And you supply teachers or just um, knowledge? We don't. We supply, basically we supplied the money uh, and we have an exchange programme with them. And I think it's, you know, the, the philosophy and model of development economics is to make sure that what we don't do is set up a satellite school where there is a dependency upon us. Good. Um, so really what it is, it's about establishing the infrastructure and allowing them to be self-sustaining once mm-hmm. they're up and running. We would like to continue to contribute on an annual basis and to... to to start that exchange going with a view potentially and this is a a long term plan but technically there's no reason why uh, given the right students and the right opportunity that we couldn't offer a scholarship or scholarships so free of charge bursaries basically for somebody to come and board at Dubai College get that education get the the top tier university preparation and potentially have a completely life changing experience from the, the foundation school in J.C. Talk.
0: Sounds fantastic. And you've been over there because I have not. Have no, you not? not. No, oh, no, Get no. on with it,
1: Mike. Yeah, yeah. No, I, the head of charity and the head of extracurricular, director of extracurricular, have taken complete ownership of, of getting off the ground. <laughs> and they don't allow you there. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Soon, I
0: hope. Right, I have one, two tricky questions for you. Oh, dear. Really? I'm going to put you on the spot. Rose warned me. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't worry. Uh, two tricky questions. I'm going to put you on the spot. What would be your advice for a teacher thinking of going international? Do your homework. Uh, I think so. There are
1: really incredible opportunities out there for people looking to move internationally. Equally, there are some amazingly slick-looking operations for schools that currently don't even exist but their marketing and their advertising and their brochures make it look like the school is already up and running and it'll be 4th sure. of September. So You've got to be very, very careful. You've got to know what you're looking for, do your due diligence, um, and
0: ideally, you know, do a site visit if you can. Absolutely. Um, and what about if you're a head teacher who wants to go and be a head at an international school? Yeah. Same ag- or ag- different?
1: Again, the same principles. I mean, the, the the thing to bear in mind, I suppose, is is to be aware of, um, quite how accountable you will be, and what the legislation and the legal framework is in any country that you're in, because depending on where you work, if you put your foot wrong, the the the, the potential penalties are significantly more than they would be in the UK, for example. <laughs> for example, um, I mean, it, f- in, in, imprisonment, extradition, right. yeah. you, you, uh, you know, worse than
0: Offsted. Well, I don't know about that. (laughs) Mike Lambert, thank you very much. Ed, thanks so much.